HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on tour. Today, we're bringing you Inside the Slow Seed Summit, a conference hosted by Slow Food USA, presenting perspectives on food security, seed preservation and sovereignty, and community engagement. The conference took place between May 13th and 15th, 2022, and as media partners for the summit, we're excited to give you an inside look at key conversations. Enjoy this peek into the Slow Seed Summit. Welcome, everyone. The title of this session is Author Readings for May 15th. The theme for today was Women, Seeds, and Community. And I'm so grateful to my colleague, John Hosdoffer, for stepping in and bringing some folks from his network to ours. Dr. John, why don't you take it away? Well, it's such an honor, Mara, and hello, everybody. I'm really humbled to be asked to lead a discussion on women, seeds, and community. You know, we were able to interview the ecofeminist Vandana Shiva this morning, and I think she reminds everyone to think about the, the intersection of, of, of feminism and food justice is not just quantitative around the fact that 80% of the world's food labor is from women, and therefore, you know, who suffers from uh, the consequences of pesticides, in terms of cancer rates, and birth defects, and the emotional pain of seeing children die from um, environmentally driven poverty and injustice is women, but there's also qualitative, and I think from Shiva, more hopeful way of thinking about this intersectionality, and that is around when you look at the 80,000 plants, food plants that have been produced by humans, that incredible, incredible biodiversity, that 80% also means that that creativity that generated not only civilization, but the biodiversity we know and thrive off of is from women as well. And so the she really wants to stress the playfulness and creativity that goes into social movements and food movements and see sovereignty movements, but to recognize it's all sourced in, in the creativity of, of, of feminist solidarity that, goes, solidarity that goes back to the production of um, agriculture uh, itself. And so in celebration of that, I'm honored to invite a number of friends here and I'll kind of share my screen and kind of show you a little bit of our run of show um, we have poet Heather Swan here who has generously offered to share four poems, and we're going to interweave her work before and after each speaker. 
And so I just want to share a little bit here, Heather's biography. Heather Swan's poems have appeared in such journals as Poet Love, Phoebe, The Raleigh Review, Midwestern Gothic, and Cold Mountain, and in several anthologies, including the Center for Humans and Nature's five-volume collection, Kinship, Belonging in a World of Relations, Rewilding, and How to Love the World. She's the author of the poetry collection, A Kinship with Ash, the chapbook, The Edge of Damage, which won the Wisconsin Chapbook Award, and the creative nonfiction book, where honeybees thrive, stories from the field, which won the Sigurd F. Olson Nature Writing Award. She teaches environmental literature and writing at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Welcome, Heather. Um, you will hear uh, nothing from me once uh, Heather reads her first poem. And at the end of her last poem, I will open a conversation. I will be monitoring the chat throughout. And so I would love it if the conversation I moderate is more from you all as an audience uh, than, than from ideas I bring to the table. Uh, and so you will see right away Catherine Kasuth Cummings after Heather's first poem. Catherine Kasuth Cummings is a Lebanese-American writer and editor born to and living on the ancestral homelands of the people of the Council of Three Fires, as well as in the Menominee, Miami, and Ho-Chunk nations. She co-edited the book uh, with the Center of Humans and Nature, called What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? She'll share a brief piece from that um, and serves as managing editor at the Center for Humans and Nature. Check out um, humansandnature.org. Uh, maybe Mara could put that in the chat. Incredible resource where she leads the questions for a resilient future and the editorial fellows program. And you can see her question series on that website. She received her BA from Emory, and she's an alumna of the University of Chicago program in, in, in editing. And so we'll, we'll hear from Heather, then Catherine, then another poem from Professor Swan. And then uh, Kaylena will share um, her perspective as uh, a Seneca, a uh, turtle clan from the Seneca Nation of Indians. She has grown up eating traditional white corn, which has given fuel to a career focused on strengthening indigenous knowledge of traditional agriculture, native foodways, and environmental health. Her work throughout the Americas has served to educate and strengthen vital links between indigenous food systems, local economies, and climate change adaptation. She holds her degrees from Brown University and the University of Oxford. And she's currently pursuing a, a doctor of philosophy at uh, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She is the co-founder of Alianza Milpa, an indigenous-led fund supporting seed diversity in native communities across Turtle Island and serves on the Navigation Council of Tamalpais Trust, an international grant-making organization. We will then hear from Heather again, and then we'll hear from Anjanette Wilson, who just, applause everybody, earned her Master in Environmental Management last week. Uh, and she'll, yes, and she'll be sharing the work she did for her master's project with Global Seed Savers. Um, Anjanette Wilson, comma, M-E-M, is a first-generation college student and first-generation Filipino-American whose passion for environmental justice fuels her advocacy for a sustainable future. Anjanette found community in seed saving through traditional Filipino practices while navigating the Filipino diaspora in environmental justice circles. She's a recent graduate from Western Colorado University, where she received her Master in Environmental Management with an emphasis on food justice and international seed sovereignty movements in the Philippines. Currently, Anjanette serves as the Development Coordinator 
at Global Seed Savers, where she works to aid the dismantling of systems of oppression by preserving the Filipino culture through seed saving. Anjanette is an eager intersectional environmental justice advocate, young seed savior, and environmental management professional whose work parallels the communities, helping reimagine the integration of culture, ecologically minded, equitable, and just systems. Steadily through integration of culture and with a sticky note and pen, Anjanette is ready to learn. I'm John Houser. I'm the Dean of the School of Environment where Anjanette earned her MEM degree. And so with that, um, you will not hear from me until the flow is done. I'll be hanging out enjoying the wisdom and words of our, our friends and colleagues who are leading this panel and I'll be monitoring the chat for you as audience members to, to drive the discussion to follow. So thank you, Heather. Thank you, John. And thank you all. I'm so grateful to be here. I feel very honored to be with such amazing humans doing such amazing work. Um, I um, am a poet who, who writes about the natural world um, almost always. <laughs> I think all of my poems are connected in some way to the natural world. Um, the poems that I'm going to read today all have to do with seeds, um, but seeds in different capacities and um, carrying different meaning. The first poem I'm going to read today is a poem from a series of poems called The Words of Noah's Wife, um, which um, was imagining the voice of the woman on the ark um, protecting uh, species and plants. And um, I think that this idea, um, the, the notion of, of protecting um, and carrying something forward in a time of chaos is, is apt, at least for me right now. Um, so I'll just read this first poem, which is about saving the seeds. The words of Noah's wife, day 10. There are seeds in the hems of my dresses, which I gathered before the rain. I opened each steam and filled each furrow with thick rows of promise. I feel them now brushing my ankles, melon, amaranth, almond, thistle, cypress, lime. Are they aware of their potential? Does the tomato seed know of its kinship with blood? Heather, thank you. Um, and thank you friends who have gathered and joined, joined us for this um, conversation today. Um, I'm Catherine Kasuf Cummings, and I am joining you as a guest from the traditional homelands of the Coast Miwok people. Um, but as uh, John read in my bio, I um, was born to, and I, I live on the homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, Ojibwe, Potawatomi, Odawa, as well as the land that was the homelands of, is the homelands of the Menominee, Miami, and Ho-Chunk nations. Um, and that land that is my home, my home, where I call home, uh, was a place of exchange and gathering and healing for their people. Um, I was so grateful to be asked to, to speak on um, seeds and so, um, and, to, and to join this conversation. Um, I dropped into the, the talk that Vandana Shiva gave this morning, and I, I hope that if you weren't able to make that, that you will. 
go back and, and view the video because she was um, just extending so much wisdom, rapid fire. Um, it's one that I'm going to be going back to as well. But a few, few of the things that she shared landed with me for this conversation. And I want to open with one of the things she said about that ev evolutionary past and the evolutionary potential lives in seeds. Um, and seeds are both ancestors and children. So the living thread of our relationship with the land and the dying thread, I think also is beautifully articulated by Robin Kimmerer in the volume that I co-edited with John and my colleagues, uh, Brooke Perry Hecht and Melissa Nelson. Um, Robin writes in that book, soil joins the realm of memory to the ultimate source of becoming. Humans become humus. Um, so the composting, the decomposition, the death and loss that gives good soil for our seeds, these seeds to give life. Um, and so this is about embodiment, which I think so many of us zooming into so many things these days, uh, it's really easy to just see everyone as heads in squares. And um, you know, our bodies nourish the soil that nourishes the seeds and those seeds nourish our lives. And so I wanna bring us back to our bodies and to, to the earth. Um, and uh, this understanding also lives in the realm of the mind and in our language. Um, David Abram, who has written the phenomenal book, The Spell of the Sensuous, and has also written for the Questions for Resilient Future series of the Center for Humans and Nature, which I edit. Um, he wrote in that, um, essay for us that human is cognate with humus, soil, um, and those words also share uh, origin with the word humility. Um, we are always in relationship with what's come and what's coming with the seeds. And so what is the quality and the intentionality of that relationship? As I've been traveling, I uh, have been in some great conversations and someone shared with me about a study um, that uh, was done where folks were asked to point to themselves. And um, I think largely <laughs> the finding was that when you're asked to point to yourself, people point to their heart, not their head, not their foot. Um, and so I'm gonna ask us all just to place a hand over your heart and to consider the questions are we giving the seeds good soil? Because how we hold the seeds is how we hold ourselves and each other and all. Um, the patterns and potentials of our ancestors are alive within us and we have choices. And that was another thing that Vandana Shiva uplifted for us today around the word intelligence, the root of which is to understand and inherent in that is uh, the ability to choose so it brings me into this book uh, that John and I uh, built with our colleagues. Um, but the question is one that was uh, just handed to us and has much older origins. Um, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? There's a choice in that. And I'm gonna just close by reading from um, our colleague Kate Sandiland's essay in this book um, where she brings it back to the humus, to the soil. Um, so let me find the passage here. Being good kin, being good compost for others, especially at this critical moment, requires mourning. As Haraway, and that's Donna Haraway, um, writes simply, 
there are so many losses already and there will be many more. And just turning our attention to loss is an important, if painful, act of ecological understanding. And Kate, Kate continues on here. Um, Inheritance is possessive individualism passed on down the patrilineal family line. Good ancestry is, in contrast, a generous offering of one's life to an unknown multiplicitous future. You can't take it with you and you can't even really pass it on, but you can help to create a medium in which lives may flourish in the distant future by living a life well and with an eye to its eventual decomposition. What will be the quality of the soil that I cannot help but become? And so that is the question that really took off for me this morning, especially after listening to Dr. Shiva talk. What is the quality of the soil that I cannot help but become? So I'm gonna close there. Thank you for allowing me to share. Thank you, that was very, very beautiful. Catherine, um, it's, I feel quite appropriate that John asked me now to read a, a poem that I wrote for my daughter. Um, part of my grief, and I think the grief of, the grief of many of us that are, um, that are living with consciousness right now is knowing that um, there, this world that the children are inheriting is, is problematic and needs work. And, and so, Part of my motivation is thinking about the next generation, uh, whether I'm in class or I'm writing a poem or I'm being a parent. And this poem is about my daughter um, and about it's about letting her go. She's now graduating from high school. She's, she's leaving the nest, if you will. Um, and there's all kinds of... Um, sadness with that letting go and also so much hope and joy. Um, and so um, seeds appear in this poem, um, certainly as real seeds, but also as metaphorical seeds. 17. Oh, child, how comforting the tug of your shoelaces across the top of your tiny shoes and the careful bow I made to keep you safe as you ran off through the field of dandelions so many seeds aloft in clouds behind you, rising in the autumn blue air. That was beautiful. Thank you, Heather. Wow. I think it's so appropriate um, that you're, you wrote that for your daughter, just in thinking about how some of our uh, philosophies talk about the seven generations and how important it is for us to consider not just our grandchildren, but their grandchildren in every step that we take and every action that we we hold. So I want to begin just by introducing myself. Um, I just said in my my language, the Seneca language, um, greetings, and I'm, I'm so thankful to be here and, and to see everyone here doing well. And I'm from um, the Haudenosaunee, which is a confederacy um, throughout current day New York into Canada and Wisconsin. And I'm from the Seneca Nation. My name is Wasentat in the Seneca language and Kaylina in the English language. Um, 
And I'm, I am so grateful and thank you for allowing me to be here and to share some of what um, I've experienced uh, when it comes to the beauty of seeds. Um, it's been a, a big, big teacher in my life. And it's really hard to articulate how something that, you know, has kind of persisted for our people um, for so long has, you know, even today still has this effect of transforming, um, nourishing and healing our people. Um, so when I, I, I wrote down a couple of just quick notes as, as um, you know, before coming to our gathering today. And the first thing I wrote down was um, seeds as relatives. And I think Catherine, you said this so beautifully, and I know it was reflected in, in Vandana Shiva's talk, but it just resonates so much that, you know, in our creation stories, our seeds have persisted um, as a relative, as our, um, you know, as our teachers, as our knowledge carriers. And in our creation story, we have, um, we have an understanding that when the Sky Woman was falling to the earth, to the turtle's back. She's looking down at this hole and she just topples into the hole. And as she's falling down, she's grabbing all of these roots and these seeds. And then she's plummeting down into what was the water world at that time. She held onto these seeds in her hand. And when she was carried onto the turtle's back, she then has these seeds in her hand. And it's like, what am I gonna do with these seeds? How am I gonna live here? There's no one here. And so the animals came together and dove into the water one by one, the muskrat, the otter, all trying to grab a little piece of earth that they knew was at the bottom of the ocean. And so finally, the brave muskrat grabs the, the soil and brings it up in his little hand and is, gives this little piece of, of earth to her. And from there, she starts walking in a counterclockwise direction to kind of build out the earth and the turtle's back. So, which is where we get the idea of turtle Island. And on this, she begins to plant our seeds. And so we have the three sisters, the corn beans and squash that come from that. And so we still celebrate that today. We have our ceremonies, our dances that, that really honor women and the role that women have in, in, you know, maintaining our seeds. And so as we, you know, over time and over history, these seeds really represent um, the resilience that I think has allowed for our people to live. Um, so we have the white corn, which is something that I grew up on. And, and I wrote um, an essay in the, the, such an honor to have written this essay about what kind of ancestor do you want to be? <laughs> and I reflected on, on white corn, which is in all, most of our dishes, our soups, our, um, our food for our ceremonies. And my, my father plants white corn, my great grandfather planted. So it's a very important seed for us. And, um, and yeah, it just, I, I just think of the white corn as, as one of our, you know, biggest forms of healing, because if you think about a time when, you know, our seeds, you know, our seeds have gone through such a, a long legacy. And I'm just thinking to the white corn now when there was a moment in our history when, you know, our corn fields were burned. Um, and from that, those ashes, our, our ancestors, they, you know, had no food, all of our food was burned. 
and they saw that these roasted corn kernels could be used. And so then we, we developed this type of soup called roast corn soup that we still eat today. So almost in every, everything that we do is just a reflection of how, you know, of how we've lived, how we persist. And, and it's, it's in such great gratitude to the seeds that were really able to, um, to be here today. So I just wanted to take a moment to give thanks to our seeds. And that's, a, I think, an important thing that, um, you know, thinking through how we're all interconnected. Um, and, and yeah, I wanted to also um, to, to read a, a, just the last little bit of what I had written. I think it, it really reflects, and I think you may have written in the chat too, John, which is a really important, um, I don't know, it just, I guess the preface to that, that end of the essay is that I had gone to this, um, I had been invited to the Onondaga Nation, which is part of our confederacy. Can we and, have you read it as well, Kaylena? Yeah, no, no, I yeah, will. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll read just the, the end part. The way you worded it is so wonderful. I didn't mean to cut you off. Just go yeah, ahead. Sorry. No, thank you. I'm so glad you wrote that in there. Yes. Um, but so I was at this, at the Onondaga Nation, and they had just been gifted um, an incredible seed collection from from um from a man named Carl Barnes from, he was Cherokee living in Oklahoma, but had amassed this incredible collection and he had passed away. And so there was no one to take care of this collection. And through just the way the world works and the networks of seed keepers, it was gifted to the Onondaga nation. And so we arrived there um, and saw this just incredible collection of corn seeds specifically. And so we get in there um, and I'm kind of in my own like headspace trying to absorb just it's in, it, if you've never been in, in it's just like being among ancestors is what, what it really felt like in there so I get in there and this is sort of like where my thought process is and so I say to this day when I eat white corn and soups or boiled bread I think of what life must have been like for my ancestors and the strength and resilience needed for this corn to be here I think of the French expedition of 1687, where they burned half a million bushels of white corn in a raid designed to wipe out the Haudenosaunee people at Ganagato, present day New York. Despite these attempts, we are still here and the corn is still here. There's a sign displayed prominently in the seed house of this extensive and ancient corn collection. It's a framed photo of corn cobs and imprinted seeds that reads, they tried to bury us. They didn't know we were seeds. Thank you. So beautiful. I thank you so much. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm calming down in this way that feels so expansive. Just knowing all of the energy of the ancestors are being summoned right now. I, it's just so beautiful. Thank you um, for that. I. Um, yeah, the idea of resilience and um, the interconnection is just very powerful. Thank you. Uh, the poem that I want to read now is about um, thinking about how all of the old knowledges um, were so much wiser. And we have these uh, so many things in civilization right now are, are sort of... Um, really antithetical to um, my values. And I started thinking about all of the 
um, the lives of the objects and the practices of modernity and thinking about how, what I would give up to have these other things. And so the poem um, is called In Which I Begin to Bargain. And it's basically, yes, what I would give up uh, to have these other things thrive. In Which I Begin to Bargain. For my plastic water bottle, the albatross. For my four lane, seeds unbound. For my cotton quilt, the many years of backs, the many years of hands. For my wireless, some silence. For my tortilla chips, the fields of daisies, the fields of Queen Anne's lace. For my gas cap, the polar bear, the harbor seal, the turn. For my thermostat, the mountaintops of Kentucky and West Virginia. And for my perfect lawn, frogs. For my insecticide, the songbirds eggs, the butterflies, the bees. For my fossil fuels, the fossils, the strata undisturbed. For my palm oil, the orangutan. For my mascara, the rabbits, the mice and for my smartphone, Congo. For my blue jeans, the seamstresses, and their eyes, their children, their hands. For my many myths, the crows, the bats, the rattlesnakes, the spiders. For my jet plane, the coral reef, the mollusks of many shapes. And for my mirror, skies. Beautiful, Heather. Thank you for sharing. Well, I haven't written a book yet, but I am the author of my existence. My name is Anjanette Wilson. And before I tell you a little bit more about myself, I'd like to provide you all with some important, maybe familiar context. Early on in my professional journey, I realized the environmental community lacked a key component which I now identify as intersectionality. I tried for many years to understand why conversations surrounding environmentalism were had in not only white and predominantly white spaces, but also male spaces and spaces that lacked a certain cultural familiarity to me. I'm a first generation Filipino American and I've struggled my whole life trying to fit in into a community, whether that be the environmental community, being the Filipino community, or even just my neighborhood community. I just never fit in. I'm either not Filipino enough or I'm not white enough. It's always that I'm not something enough. I'm also a first generation college student. And even in the academic space, I have felt like an imposter. However, I found in my graduate studies a sense of belonging that I had never before encountered. So during my search for a community sponsor for my master's in environmental management project, I came across an organization that showed me what real representation looks like to me. I found an organization where the staff and the farmers looked like, looked like my Lola, my Lolo, my grandma and grandpa in the Philippines, my Ates, my Kuya, my Titas, they just looked like me. The organization I partnered with uh, for my master's project was Global Seed Savers. 
And just very quickly, Global Seed Savers is a nonprofit organization advocating for food and seed sovereignty in the Philippines. And our mission is to support smallholder farmers in creating technical training, um, creating local food sovereignty through technical training and establishing community owned and operated seed libraries. Global Seed, Saver Global seed Savers has trained over 5,000 farmers, established six seed libraries, supported the increase in the production of indigenous and heirloom seeds, and has saved over 120 plus seed varieties. Our farmers in the Philippines use traditional farming practices and traditional seed saving practices, just like my ancestors did. Seed saving not only, and I'm preaching to the choir here, it not only ensures seed sovereignty, but it quickly becomes a method by which we can preserve and rekindle aspects of our culture. And as you are learning with me here today, our identities. I didn't grow up saving seeds and I didn't grow up growing my own food. So my involvement with Global Seed Savers was vital to my reconnection to my Filipino heritage and culture. Finding seed saving through Global Seed Savers has led me to the work of my ancestors, creating a space where I'm not the imposter, but an arbiter, an usher, a steward. I'm a steward of seed saving as a way to shatter my own struggles with imposter syndrome while furthering our environmental, our environmental movement our movement of preserving culture and restoring and attaining food sovereignty. And just like my other panelists here, it's an honor and privilege to inhabit this virtual space, talking about women, talking about farming, talking about seeds and the history of seeds and about the many intersections and identities that we all have that are coming together in this space. When in many places, Filipino women aren't able to have conversations about work towards gender equality or social injustices. About 70% of our farmers at Global Seed Savers are women who are mothers, who are still raising young families. Women are stewards of seed stories and they carry the stories which hold our oral history. Something of critical importance to us and to our ancestors. They are culture keepers. And in some small part of this pale blue dot where the bright green landscape is ravaged by over 20 typhoons and tropical storms yearly, this work is dearly needed. For an example, one of our farmers and also one of our field monitors at Global Seed Savers, Manang Elizabeth, an indigenous woman, had her family's home for of generations completely wiped out by a typhoon a few years ago. The farm that they grew for generations, the indigenous food that they've had. But because of our local seed libraries, her and other farmers were able to replant their family farms, regrow their own food and sustain their livelihoods effectively weathering the blows of a climate disaster. And I've seen that Elizabeth Manang Elizabeth demonstrated true climate resiliency through seed saving. My journey to seed saving and my journey to supporting this work on a global international scale has really just begun. You know, I just graduated with my master's from the academic side, but really applying that and learning from my own culture has taught me a different way to have how to navigate this world in this Filipino diaspora. 
it's beyond helping propel me past my own barriers, integrating myself and my culture into this work. And it's shown me what true acts of international solidarity looks like and what we need to, to decolonize seeds, like how Dr. Vandana Shiva was talking about this morning, to decolonize seeds, right? And seed saving has really lit up a pathway to intersectional belonging and culture to me. It is a pathway lined with the open arms of my ancestors and one that I will continue to help light for others. Thank you for the space. Thank you so much. That's very inspirational. Um, I, yes, I just, I keep wanting to just gush after each of you read, I feel so lucky. Um, so um, I'm, I've also been really um, influenced by Vandana Shiva for a long time. Um, my interest in, um, in all of the thinking about um, seeds and plants was actually through insects because I um, have been in love with pollinators for a long time. Um, and I wrote a book about um, the, the very, very damaging um, system of industrial agriculture that we have um, that talked about um, all of the, the problems with pesticides and monocropping and one seed for all of these amazing diverse plants that we can have, you know, this, this kind of um, crazy system we have. Um, and Vandana Shiva was just, she, she reminded me that, that things are possible, that we can change. Um, very inspirational. And this is also very inspirational. Um, the Global Seed Savers, wonderful. Um, so I, when I was writing a, a book of poetry, um, the, the, my book called A Kinship with Ash, um, I have a series of poems that I wrote in there about pesticides. Um, my dad died uh, recently of a disease that um, is caused by pesticides. My, my dog actually got cancer and died from, um, from what we think is probably um, an overdose of lawn chemicals. Um, it's, it's a really personal uh, thing for me. Um, and so when I learned that pesticides uh, had the names um, like Victor and Luna and Liberty, I was so enraged and I wanted to write a poem for every pesticide name and and to take those words back um, and to to honor the things that were being destroyed um, by these pesticides and so I'm going to read you a pesticide poem um, and as I, as I said that that each of the poems are actually there is actually a, a pesticide called Victor and so I I chose this one pesticide seven Victor the handfuls of dead bees she finds after the spraying are not the worst part for the beekeeper. It's the bees still struggling that gets to her, limping in a circle like someone who's been spinning on a tire swing for too long, who then stands dizzy, nauseous, stunned. Their wings shudder, but they cannot fly. These insects whose bodies know the rhythm of the blossoms the changing angles of the sun, whose alchemy gives us liquid gold, whose love affairs with pistols and stamens give us apricots, almonds, melons. To witness is to be dredged, she thinks. What war do we think we're winning? 
Thank you. Wow, love affairs with pistols and stamens. That's really incredible. Thank you, Heather. Um, I, let's all thank the panelists, first of all, either in the chat or through an emoji. Truly, my gratitude is unending. Um, my friend Robin Wall Kimmerer, who co-edited this kinship volume that we're working on with Gavin Van Hora, came out, uh, always reminds me to let gratitude always defeat greed, right? And so let's offer gratitude um, to all of our panelists. And I await questions in the chat. We have about six minutes, but I just want to open with um, a return to the question of grief. Um, and, and Kate, Catherine Kasuth Cummings here in her essay in the Ancestor Anthology says this here, we are made for loss. And I guess I want to open up a conversation about loss and grief and the role of seed saving in that um, era, in this era of anthropogenic grief. Um, as a dean, um, there's an inequity in the emotional labor of my department that I am humbled by and that I am working on. Um, this disproportionately nationally, right? Who students go to, you know, when carrying emotional weight statistically as female faculty, faculty of color, when something happens, traumatic happens in the department, who ends up setting up the food train, right? And who's therefore free to just go in their office and work on the research? The latter tends to be men, the former, that emotional labor, even in academia, even in progressive academic departments as women and faculty of color. Um, and I'm curious how, how that applies, that emotional labor applies to climate grief. Kate says we're made for loss, but who's asked to be made for loss? As, as Anjanette pointed out, women are predominantly doing the seed saving. Um, if seed saving is partly how we heal from grief, um, I'm curious if it's a gender inequity in, in both seed saving and in climate grief and environmental grief, or um, if that inequity is instead empowering, that women are put in, in, a, in, a, in a position of agency and leading healing. I'm curious just the relationship between grief, women, and seed saving. I have a kind of forming thought, so I'll be brave and maybe jump in with that. <laughs> um, you know, when you talk about the emotional labor and, and, and the work, I mean, this is maybe, maybe why it feels a little brave is because I'm speaking a little bit more out of experience. Um, you know, in my mom's culture, the, there's a saying, the funeral is springtime for women. So it really was understood, you know, and I think on the, on the reverse, you know, midwifery, like who knows a woman's body better than someone who's living in one and who can assist in the births. Um, and so there's a responsibility perhaps with that, um, that a lot of our, you know, traditional cultures understood inherently maybe, um, I think, um, and so I don't know if it's so much a problem as that there's not support, there's not witnessing of it. And it's like, 
steps gives and spaciousness really for that to happen, you know, because there's a, a lack of valuation of that work. It goes unseen. There's no spaces created for it. There's no so support for it. So women are trying to find, you know, women and uh, female bodied persons and women identifying persons are trying to find value in the ways that our culture applies value. They're trying to find space and support in the ways that our dominant culture supplies that while also carrying, you know, some of what might be more inherently the gifts um, and uh, responsibilities of having female energy. I think that's my initial response to what you lifted up. I wonder what others think. Yeah, I wonder what others think as well. Am I hearing you, Kate, say sort of like, it's not so much the labor that's problematic, it's whether or not that labor is seen and supported. Yeah, that's how I feel. It's like when this is your gift or if it feels like it's your calling, I mean, it just, it makes sense. But if there's no space for it and there's no support for it and you're having to do other things alongside it, it really limits your capacity. It limits your, um, you know, maybe valuation by the culture, uh, which can be significant, you know, for like um, pathways and opportunities and just basic livelihood, you know, not that it reduces the value of it, but I think there is an importance to having a community or a society value um, those, th those forms of, of labor. Yeah. Mm. Thank you, Kate. We have a hard stop in three minutes, everyone. Other thoughts on, on, on what Kate just said? I, I have an initial thought. Thank you for sharing that, Catherine. Kate, um, my, my thought of the term resiliency has been challenged over the last few years on whether or not we need to even decolonize that word because it puts on that pressure that you're talking about of BIPOC communities, of marginalized peoples to burden the, you know, the gashes, the, the trauma and everything just because historically they have. And because historically they've carried it on so eloquently and or in a way that we're expecting them and especially women to just burden you know, climate disasters and to be those seed savers, I'm starting to think we need to decolonize that mindset because we're now in the cycle of expecting them rather than challenging that system and breaking and dismantling it. We're just reinforcing it. And that's, that's what I'm thinking of right now. It's also bringing to mind kind of an important, um, I'm just idea around, I mean, allyship in the way that we're supporting indigenous communities, BIPOC communities, um, because I think, I mean, in a lot of, I mean, I'm just going for my own traditional teachings. I mean, ingrained within our kind of worldview is exactly what you're talking about, Kate, that kind of appreci appreciation. I don't know if that's the right word, but there's just an understanding of the role that is taking place in order to maintain the seeds, the food, and that oftentimes is through women, but men have an important role too. And that's also recognized, but I think where we are now today, I mean, it, there is this kind of inequity around the burden of what we're seeing. Um, and I, I mean, I think, 
I don't know. The word allyship is is fraught with a lot of different, um, you know, there's a lot of ways to interpret what that means. But I think being a good ally is is a bigger conversation that I think is starting to unfold and something that I think really can contribute to how movements are supported and, and how like even funding is moved and how just, I mean, support comes in all different ways. But I do think that um, just going along that thread of, of support and allies are something that I, I'm interested in exploring more and understanding too. Thank you, Kaylena. Heather, is there something on the tip of your tongue for the final word or are you? Okay. Uh, friends, let's all thank Anjanette, Catherine Kasuf, Heather, and Kaylena. Uh, so grateful. I learned so much and um, I'm just humbled by it the whole conversation and and I, i'm glad we ended on allyship kaylina thank you for that um mara the floor is yours let's all thank mara as well and her team brian and ann and, and just putting together such an incredible multi-day conversation um mara all thank yours you, thank you thank you everyone thanks to all of our panelists our speakers our authors um, your words um did not go unheeded i mean we this whole network is um, nourish these, these panels and these, um, summits that we have, I always say, give us our slow food vitamins because it, it, the, all of these ideas from all of you wonderful folks really plant the seeds of, um, seeds of revolution is what it feels like. I think we're ready for some decolonization efforts and some, some real reflection throughout our network due to all of these conversations. So thank you for contributing, um, to this work. We're glad to have you be part of it. And I will end there. We have a um, regenerating community health panel coming up next. So stick around for that. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.